Keep us in prayer as we drive our pleasant 12 hours to Volga, South Dakota on the uh, east side for our Presbytery meeting. We meet twice a year, as you know, in our Presbytery, which is the regional church uh, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And uh, we will be there, uh, we'll get there Monday night, we'll be there Tuesday, Wednesday, and uh, probably get home Thursday, depending on how soon things are done um, on Wednesday. And others are traveling besides us, of course, um, others from Colorado and whatnot, so they got long drives. Please keep them in prayer, and that we would stay safe and alert while we are driving. Other than that, I don't think there are any, are any other pressing announcements. We have the call to worship, wherein God uh, calls his people, calls the world to be sure, but especially his people, and we are by his spirits brought here and wherever else God's people reside together. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We should be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Let's bow hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 435, 435.
indeed God Almighty. We are grateful for the glorious grace that we have in Christ Jesus, that we live because he lives, Lord, and we are here because we have your spirit, God Almighty, and you direct all things for the good of your people and for your glory. We pray, God, that we continue to cling to such truths and to be encouraged by your word, by your gospel, Lord Almighty, and here, Lord, as we are gathered in a special manner publicly worship and praise your name. We pray all these things in accordance to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory, and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. may be seated. We have the responsive reading, which is an insert in the bulletin. There's a page behind the prayer list. It's uh, Psalm 66, or part of Psalm 66, that we will uh, read responsively. That is, I will read the bold-faced, and you will read the other verses. Make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doings toward the sons of men. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. And thus, one of the genres, types of psalms that we're most familiar with, of praising and shouting before God, there are other ones. There are about four or five different types of psalms that have different purposes and functions. And this is a clear and obvious one uh, that we will be singing this evening. Let us pray. We do come before you, God, not only today, Lord, but throughout the week uh, when we have times of quietness and refreshing, Lord, with our family, with ourselves, to uh, pray before you, to sing, Lord, praises to you for the glorious things that you have done for us. We thank in particular, God Almighty, your goodness and long-suffering towards us through your providence and guidance of all things. For our good, Lord, have you kept us healthy, you've given us shelter, you've given us clothing on our back. God, you've given us friends and family and a church, Lord, and the preaching of your word and the giving of the sacraments. All these come from your bountiful hands. We pray and ask, Lord, that we continue in spite of any difficulties that we have in our lives, the things that we struggle with ourselves, and certainly the sins, Lord, that easily beset us to never lose sight of the greatness that is you, of the love and the goodness and mercy that you've poured upon us in all things, especially through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, that we may be encouraged thereby. As we come before you as your people, Lord, we acknowledge our sins, 
We certainly, Lord, somewhere, somehow, have sinned throughout this week with our words, with our anger, Lord, and our hearts and our emotions, God Almighty, in various and sundry ways. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge our sins, to know your law enough so that we can evaluate our actions in one another, Lord, for we are called to bear one another's burdens to the best that we can. And so, God Almighty, that we may grow in the image of Christ Jesus, as promised in your gospel. And that begins and continues in our life through the life of repentance, acknowledging our sins. Help us, Lord, to fight against them and to be encouraged by the gospel promise that you forgive us our sins. You wipe them away on the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to but acknowledge our sins and always come to the cross. It will never, Lord, grow cold for us. Ineffectual, it's always there for us, the work of Christ Jesus. May we be encouraged therein to carry on in our life, therefore, and our responsibilities and duties to one another. And we have responsibilities in our family, in society, and our job, but also with respect to one another by our age differences, Lord. We have the young and old alike, and you have given different strengths and weaknesses to us, Lord, in our different stages of life. And we think of the youth and the children around us, God, that you would be with them and protect them and watch over them, that they would grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord Almighty, and that they would listen uh, to the godly instruction of their parents and of the older ones around them, Lord, and the adults in the room and that they may grow and be protected, Lord, from the sins of this world and temptations. They they would learn what the elders amongst them, the older ones, men and women alike, have learned through experience sometimes, God, and thus uh, be on top of our shoulders and go further in God's kingdom than we have gone before. So we pray and ask that you would be with them, the youth especially, Lord, as they are coming in time in their life to finish up school, to get a career and a job in life, to, to provide for their family as husbands especially, Lord, and be with the, the women and the men, uh, that they would find godly mates, that they would stay away from temptation and sin, our Lord and Savior, and that's, again, they would take their strength and energy and creativity for the good of those close to them, their family and their church, God Almighty, that this is part of uh, their role, again, as they are able. And the kingdom of God, with their strong backs and strong minds, Lord, to be used for God's kingdom, to listen and to be directed by those of age and experience, and that the age among us, Lord, whatever age is beyond youth, matters not, uh, would take what we have learned in our experience and help the youth to avoid pitfalls in this life. And, Lord, to use their energy and creativity, God, and to not to shut them down, Lord, that we would work together that the world may see, uh, Lord God, that you have brought many into the body of Christ, not just young and old, uh, but different backgrounds and, Lord, different experiences and different uh, levels of wealth, poor and rich alike as well, and that we are all united in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and given different strengths and abilities in God's kingdom to be used for one another, for the growth of the kingdom of God. Help us, God, as a presbytery. We are part of a larger body of Christ, Lord, not just on paper, but in practice, Lord, as we live uh, in submission to the presbytery of the regional church, Lord, that covers Colorado. Utah, Wyoming, and Dakotas, Lord, uh, that the leadership that's going there this week, Lord, uh, would get the work done that needs to be done, and that the committee reports would be uh, effectual and helpful, Lord, and that the matters decided would be done in a godly and wise manner in accordance to your word, Lord, above we pray. And we ask, God, that you would help our presbytery to have wisdom and understanding of the things that need to understand in their body, in their midst here among all our churches, 
to help those churches, to pray for those churches, and to give them guidance and protection as they are able, Lord, and that we would live in par- uh, godly harmony in accordance, again, to your truth and your gospel. Lord, as a presbytery, help us, we pray, and watch over those who travel uh, tomorrow, God, that you'd protect them as only you can in your providence, whether they're flying or driving, God, and uh, that, again, we would have the sleep that we need and the alertness to deal with the matters before us, and to be done, we pray, uh, with your smile upon us as a presbytery. We ask God in particular for our health to watch over us and to give us the means that we have before us by your providence. Continue to give us what we need to take care of our body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, Lord, and not to be lackadaisical in these matters. Also, at the same time, not to be discouraged, for there are things, Lord, that there's very little, it seems that we can do, that doctors can do for us. Some of us have chronic ailments that are upon us, Lord, or sicknesses and body aches that come upon us suddenly, God, and can be very discouraging and disheartening. May we not be discouraged and disheartened, Lord, in the sense that we know this world is temporal and our body will be raised up better, God, and purged of all the effects of sin. Help us to look forward to that day, Lord, but meanwhile to do what we can. Use the means, causes, and occasions that you've given us in our lives so that we can take care of our body and take care of one another, both in diet and exercise, Lord, and good advice. And so we do pray and continue to pray that we would be protected from various ailments and sicknesses, Lord, and keep us here. We pray a little longer for one another, we ask. Help us, we pray, as families to grow in love for one another and submission to the husbands. And, Lord, that the wives would continue to instruct their children and submit to their husbands, Lord, and the husbands would lead and love and protect their families as best they can, Lord, in this day and age. And that we would work together as families, as couples, as singles, God, and to do what we can to support and expand the kingdom of God through this little work in providence. We pray in your name alone. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Bless these tithes and offerings as only you can, God Almighty, and that you would help us as a church uh, to use the funds wisely to help those in material need, especially in spiritual need, God, and to continue to support the preaching ministry of your church. In your name we pray. Amen. While we are standing, let's go ahead and sing hymn 282, 282.
You may be seated. We have the reading of the Ten Commandments, which is a green insert inside the hymnal, a green insert with the Ten Commandments on the one side, so we can have the same translation. Let us say it together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, and showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless, his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Amen. Let us turn into our Bibles to Mark chapter 2. As we continue along through the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2. Verses 13 to 17. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he rose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it this he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. 
Let us pray. And so, God, we have in these words of Christ, written by the power of the Holy Spirit through the pen of Mark, his call of sinners unto repentance. Help us, Lord, to carry on that life of repentance ourselves, acknowledging that we are saved sinners, justified sinners, even God, through your mercy and grace, and to call others unto Christ Jesus our Lord to a life as only can be found in him through the life of repentance. In your name we pray, amen. As we follow Mark's narrative from chapter 1 to here, we come upon vignettes that highlight certain themes in the Lord's ministry on earth. We read that he heals and teaches the people early on, and that the healing is the most powerful kind of healing, and that Christ is a willing Savior, able to save to the uttermost, even of the soul of men. And also his call of faith, that he sees their faith and he saves them. And so far the people are excited about Jesus and his fame. It's spreading all the more early on in his ministry. And here we read about some pushback, not from the people, that comes later unfortunately, but initially from the leaders of the people, scribes and the Pharisees, as we know the great debate between them. And like today, the leaders were the elites of society back then, and we have elites today as well. They ruled over God's people politically to some extent, although under Roman rule, and especially religiously, with an authority given them by God, as Christ acknowledges elsewhere in the Gospel, where he says, they sit in the seat of Moses. Listen to them when they speak the truth. But obviously, don't do what they do when they lie and deceive. And yet, as we know, they did lie and deceive, and they ruled in a cruel manner, adding burdens upon the people that they themselves would not lift a finger up. They looked down upon the masses of the Jews. They would call them, quote, people of the soil. Or the rabble. Perhaps you've heard of the Greek phrase, hoi poloi, the masses. They did not lift a finger. They did not care a wit to help their own people and the poor and even their parents, as they had the supposed gift of korban to make excuses and not helping their own family. Now, it should sound familiar, I think, in our day and age, and thankfully we don't see it much in particular in our churches, in our circles, I think, even though we see it in spades in secular circles, I believe. And here we read how Jesus dealt with these elites, showing us the importance of his ministry to sinners in contrast to those who didn't think they needed saving. They thought they were better than others. Let's look more carefully at the text before us and to grow thereby. He teaches sinners, verse 13 again, and then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. So here we have Jesus going to popular places. The fishermen were there, as well as something of a wharf, and buying and selling is going on. It's not this big, long process that we have where you really don't want to go to the buying and selling of a port. It's too busy, too many machines and whatnot. Back then, everyone did everything by foot. And so if you want a good fish, you'd go to the seaside. And you have the buyers and sellers, a merchant of sort, going there as well. And So he took this opportunity. Some think he went there to have solitude and to uh, pray, perhaps. It didn't tell us. I think he, perhaps also on the side, was looking for a place where more people are. And one of the cases, more people follow him on top of whoever's already there. He's very popular, and it's going to grow, as we know and expand in his early ministry. Uh, today, the equivalent would be going to a school campus, a mall, or a park, something public like that, and having access to people. And uh, unfor- differently, 
than today. Back then, when you went to these public squares or circles or whatever they are, they looked for and expected someone to teach and preach. This is a common thing back then, a common activity. Unlike today where they think you're a nut job and may call the police after you for going out there and talking to them out on the streets and the highways and the byways. And so they are expecting this. They're expecting to have a crowd to listen, perhaps to hear something new, new information from somewhere else. They don't have the Internet. They don't have television. It's all word of mouth. And so the teachers and preachers would also double as a news source. And as we know here in particular, they want the healing. (laughs) They want the healing. That's not wrong in itself because they recognize and feel the fallenness of this world. More people are here as we read, and and all the multitude, many more came to him. He was so popular before he started speaking hard truths like we read in John 6, 66. Thereafter, many people left him, we read. That hasn't happened yet. So he takes the opportunity of this popularity to do what? We've read about this before, and yet again before that in chapter 1. To teach and instruct the people of God. He wants to feed them the truth. His words are life, he tells us elsewhere. And so he acts upon what he believes they need as their Messiah. Now, there's no details of instruction given, but we know from his other lectures, we know from the point of chapter 1 that the beginning of his ministry is what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and be saved. It's a ministry of repentance. Calling the church in particular, this is the Old Testament church before it's transformed in the New Testament era. And they are given the message first that the Messiah has come, the Savior of God's people. And this is their opportunity to repent and follow him. So he takes the time with his crowd and popularity not to waste time with theatrics and showiness, but instruction deep and true as we read throughout all the Gospels and the apostles who follow in his step and give meat to the people of God, as well as milk. You need both. But Christ certainly instructed them in his truth and gave them parables and admonitions and everything else. So, that's the first point. Secondly, calling sinners, verses 14 to 15. He's there. He has access to more people. And he takes the opportunity as he passed by, verse 2, he saw Levi sitting the tax office, and said, follow me. The calling of Levi, like the other disciples, Jesus simply says, follow me to that man, and to those men, as we saw in the prior chapter. Obviously, it seems to me, at this point, Levi knew who Jesus was. He wasn't just some random stranger saying, follow me, and Levi's like, okay, that guy looks kind of cool, I guess I'll follow him. His, His fame had already spread about. They heard of this Jesus, and the things that he's doing, and he's teaching. And as a rabbi... He's functionally acting as a rabbi or a master or a teacher in Israel. They knew what that meant when they, they said, follow me. I'm here to instruct you. The school of Jesus, they would say. The Jews would talk about uh, perhaps at the time. Of course, nowadays they disavow Jesus, unfortunately. And so he knew also what it meant to follow Jesus. We saw that with the other disciples. They just gave up their jobs on the spot. No longer are they fishermen. James and John and Peter and others. And here, no longer is he a tax collector. Now he's going into a new field, a new career. It's essentially a three-year 
on-the-job seminary training with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus travels, you have maps probably in the back of your Bible of the routes that Jesus went to. We don't know the exact place, but we know the cities, mostly up north. And he's circling his way eventually to Jerusalem, as we know, at the end of his life. And the disciples were with him. And it's interesting that this call of Jesus is not given to all the masses, per se. They are called to be saved, of course, to repent and believe in Jesus, and therefore be a follower that way, like us. But these are unique men highlighted here in Mark and elsewhere, that God, Jesus Christ our Lord, brought among him to raise up leaders for his people. As we know, these are the future leaders of the New Testament church. Jesus says, follow me, and therefore it has a twofold function. The second function I already talked about was that they would be the new leadership, be under his tutelage and training and instruction, on-the-job training we used to call it in the military and elsewhere, right? You're learning hands-on. That's good instruction. But also the call of repentance and a faith in Jesus Christ. Want to be my disciple? You have to believe in me, that I am your Savior. And to be a disciple means to follow me no matter what. And they do. So it's a call of salvation first and foremost, but not only in his case, of course. We know Later on in the life of the apostles, they're confused about who they're following to some extent. Just a little bit. Peter gets rebuked. How how can he talk about being killed and dying? And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. That's my job and mission. How long have I been with you? You haven't got the point yet. Because they were expecting a fiery king. And they would even argue amongst themselves, right? Who's going to be the greatest in God's kingdom? They were excited. They got some of the truth, but not all of it. Now, this incident here with Levi is interesting because it parallels very closely to Matthew 9, 9 and following. There, Levi is called Matthew. And it's it's specific that he is a tax collector. We also have Luke 5, 27 as well. And so he probably had two names, Levi and Matthew, which was not uncommon back then. As a tax collector, or what they call a publican, quote, one who gathers the public revenue on exports and imports pertaining to a province. That's why they're called publicans. The main tax booths that we have from the records are from Caesarea, further north, Jericho, and here in Capernaum was a major tax center. And they charge whatever they can get away with. And that's why they were so looked down upon. It'd be like the IRS coming up to you and just making up numbers. Although you feel like they're making up numbers, I know. But um, there's supposed to be a law against that. They had no such law back then in Rome. So you can imagine how looked down upon they were. The scum of the earth. And it was interesting, they would have the guy in charge of the providence, supposed to get taxes, and he would outsource it to someone probably like Levi, who himself would outsource it to someone on on foot to go actually get the money itself in the available area. So multiple layers there. And among the Jews, they were often considered traitors because they were, what, working for Rome, who was suppressing the natural rights of the Jewish-born citizens in their own country. 
You can imagine that kind of feeling towards them. It would be like if Red Dawn went a different way. I think many of us remember that movie or heard about that movie back in the 80s when the Russians invaded America. It came up recently with a friend of mine. And they won. And they're taking Americans to get taxes on you. You'd be very angry and upset with these Americans. What are you doing working with the Russians? And here they're like, what are you doing working with Rome? So that puts it in perspective when Christ calls a tax collector to eventually become one of his leaders, the leaders of the church. He left all. Luke 5 tells us explicitly, and we know the other disciples did as well, they left, not just their job, they left all to follow Jesus. It highlights how much Matthew gave up. Because a publican, as you can imagine, can make lots of money since they can charge whatever rate they want on top of what you're supposed to give the Rome. Now, we may not be called to leave our jobs in God's providence. It certainly doesn't happen. I don't think I've ever met anybody who does that. Unless they're a pastor. But you may lose your friends and family for being a Christian or for following Jesus Christ. And you may lose your job, or where things are going today, unfortunately, if you don't say the right thing or sign the right papers, as some of our Christian brothers and sisters lost their careers because they wouldn't bake the cake or something like that. may happen. That kind of a call may happen. But often, in God's providence, we're grateful that it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. It may never happen. Now, Matthew has friends. What kind of friends would he have? Other publicans. Oh, other publicans and sinners, the text tells us. Many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. Tax collectors, publicans, and sinners are almost synonymous with the Jews. Be a publican, you're virtually a sinner. Specifically, let's not get caught up in the language here. I want to unpack the language here of how Mark's speaking here. Specifically, a public sinner that other people knew about. It's not as though Mark is saying, no one else is a sinner but these people. I don't think that's Mark's point at all but rather from the perspective of the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the worst kind of public sinners. And so he's describing the audience from their perspective to show their arrogance and some irony, as we're going to see here when Christ flips it on them. And that's what we get here. Jesus calls sinners, Levi being a sinner, as The scribes were sinners. They just didn't think of themselves as sinners the way those guys were sinners. And Jesus calls them and his friends to salvation. But here in the third point, we have a rebuke of sinners, verses 16 to 17. At the same time, the call, the famous verses, verse 17 to be sure, although the calling came a little bit earlier in verse 14. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said... To his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? What is up with this Jesus? What kind of a rabbi is he? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. If you're not sick, why do you need a doctor? But I came to call sinners to repentance and not the righteous. The Pharisees were offended and prideful. And thus we see early on in Mark, they're going to become the arch-nemesis of Jesus in his ministry. The arch-nemesis were the leaders of the Old Testament church. They were self-righteous, thinking they could save themselves, as we know elsewhere. 
in the Gospels and in their writings, arrogant about their moral superiority, hence their shock about Jesus eating with sinners. Again, sinners as the Pharisees defined sin, which was in addition to the Ten Commandments. They played lip service. Yes, I believe in the Ten Commandments. They had to. They were going to be good Jews. But they added rules and commandments of men. As we read elsewhere in John 7, 49, But this rabble that does not know the law, accursed are they. That's how they thought of these things. We know the law of God. We know it so well. We're following it. And this rabble, they need our instruction. They need our help. They don't know their left hand from the right hand, to use the Old Testament language. And so this pride of theirs, this self-righteousness, we would call it, was very deep indeed. As I pointed out in the beginning, they called them the people of the soil, and that was not a compliment. <laughs> be almost like talking about hillbillies today or something and in politics and society and looking down at people in the south and things like that. The rabble that does not know the law. And Jesus rebukes them. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, they have need of a physician, is the implication. He leaves it hanging. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not call come to call the righteous, what? To repentance. Again, left hanging. But sinners to repentance. You don't call the righteous to repentance. If you didn't sin, you don't need to repent. It's as simple as that. If you didn't do anything wrong, why should you confess to doing something wrong? I know that our society pushes that a lot. You still need to apologize and repent. Make me feel better. But that's not how they thought back then. And Jesus used this piercing logic and rebuke. It's essentially a rebuke to the Pharisees, right? He's talking to them. He heard what they said. They're mumbling and complaining amongst themselves and their superiority to the masses. And he speaks to them, to the matter. So although I know we come to the text and it has this glorious truth, but he came to call sinners to repentance, to call us to repentance. We know our sins and we have repented and he's a savior who's come to us. That's true. And I'm going to preach on that. But let's not forget, Jesus heard it. And he's speaking about them, and therefore it's a rebuke. The metaphor is clear. Doctors help sick people. Sick people need doctors. And Christ is the doctor to heal the sick, the doctor of the soul. Jesus means spiritually, to save them from hell and the punishment of their sins, the consequences of their sins. He's a doctor like no other. In this case, the well-off Pharisees did not think they needed such a doctor. And if they needed the doctor, it was a physical doctor, not because of their sins. For they were better than others, brothers and sisters. This is how they lived and breathed and moved, as we see in the Gospels. And Jesus tells them, no. I did not come to call the righteous. We would say, the self-righteous. Look at me. I don't need Jesus. I don't need to repent. The people who think they have not sinned, or not sinned much, people think they're good enough to get to heaven. The Pharisees and scribes certainly taught that way of living. What we call legalism. 
saved by good works, which is unfortunately still taught in many circles in America. He says, rather, I've come to call sinners. Now, again, he doesn't mean, if you read it this way, objectively people who are sinners, which would include the scribes. Are not the scribes sinners? Is Jesus saying, well, the scribes aren't sinners? He's talking in the way they're thinking, right? We see this, so it's a rhetorical language of his. Yeah, you're right. You don't need me. Of course they do. But he's saying, I want... And I am coming to those who know they are sinners, who feel the weight of guilt upon their shoulders. And I'm calling them to repentance. Those who acknowledge their sins, who repent of them and hate them. Those who struggle with the burdens of sin and want it gone. In Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The yoke and burden of following Jesus is a lesser yoke than having your sins always upon your shoulders. And anyone who sees their need of a Savior, who who knows that they are dying and on their way to hell, can come to Jesus and be saved. That's what he's talking about. I've come. My job is to go to them. Those who are hardened of heart, who will not repent, those who are quote-unquote righteous, we would put air quotes, right? Righteous. I have nothing for them because they don't want me. But those, those who know their need of a Savior, they know their sick soul, I've come for them. And that would include the Pharisees. Did Nicodemus come to Jesus that night? Yeah. John 12, 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, that would include the Pharisees and scribes, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So they were fearful. So this is not an absolute prohibition. None of the Pharisees can ever be saved and things like that. Rather, he's using this rhetorical division that they have in their mind the way they speak and think. Against them. Now, today, we know the obvious use of this passage is that we come and we tell people you need to be saved from eternal hell and damnation. You are guilty before the judge of the universe. And Christ's ministry, we read in Mark 1 15, is a ministry of repentance. They need to hear the bad news. And when they acknowledge, yes, I, I hear the bad news. And I don't like it. I don't like it so much. I want to repent. How can I be saved? What shall I do to be saved? We read in Acts 2. You should repent and hate your sins and trust in Jesus and rely upon him. Rest in him for your salvation. But people mistake and misuse this incident. It's been used a lot recently, many past few, many years. It's used against those who take the gospel and the word of God seriously. Churches, pastors and Christians who believe in the call of repentance and believe in the call of holiness, who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, are being mocked by others within the broader church context, people we would perhaps call moderates 
or liberals. I, I don't know other, other word to use. I'm not trying to use political words, but religious terms of some sort in the church. And they would use this passage to say, you people are a bunch of Pharisees because you love the law so much or something like that. And, and Jesus, he sat with tax collectors and sinners. And so why don't you, you know, let your pastor be a notorious criminal or some kind of thing like that? No, they really do. It's misused that way. Why can't you have your pastor be a guy who thinks he's a woman? That's where we are now, right? And they use this passage. Well, he's a sinner too. Aren't we all sinners? Jesus sat with sinners. Dude, he sat with repentant sinners, or at least sinners who are on their way to repentance. And he says, I called them to what? To repentance. These people are not calling these... Pat, we, there is a pastor like that in some conservative circles, and others to repentance, but rather making excuses for them. So this text has been abused and continues to be abused, and I don't want you to be abused by this text. That's not the point of the text. And they'll say, look, the Pharisees, they were conservative ones, so it's the conservatives today that need to be really concerned about being Pharisees. No, 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 no. They were the self-righteous ones. That was the problem, not because they were quote-unquote conservative. They thought they didn't need to repent. So if anything... If I were to use this passage, <laughs> use on the leadership, who doesn't think they need to repent? If I happen to have access to a PCUSA church, you know, mainline liberal church, and let me preach, here you go, here's a passage for you. Did Christ come to preach to you all? Maybe not, because you don't think you need him. That's what Jesus is saying here. When I came to those who were lowly, that you looked down upon, the scum of the earth, that is, the humble ones, not necessarily scum of the earth, Social, politically, economic, or whatever, which is how it's applied, unfortunately, today. Christ was against any pride and any arrogance, even among his disciples who argued over who would be the greatest, as we know. So he reveals the pride of his enemies at the same time showing his call, his mission as our Savior, to save us to the uttermost, we who repent and see our sins. Sinners today, of course, they come to us, we tell them, Jesus came to save sinners. He called them to repentance. And thus I call you to repentance. If they want to sit down and have lunch with you and go over the gospel, great, do it. But the other half of this verse is what? There are people who don't want to hear it, who are just going to waste your time, who have hardened hearts, like the Pharisees, and they may need to be rebuked. I'll come back to you later when your heart's a little more soft. So an application of the text, I think that's one application we need to be aware of. And of course, the other part is, these people need to hear of repentance. Not just, hey, I get to hang around the wicked sinners today, as we hear in some of these circles, and you Christians don't want to hang out with them. Well, yeah, because I don't want bad influence upon my kids or even myself. Now, if I happen to be a pastor like Christ was, my calling is actually literally preaching and calling people to repentance, sure, I'll Maybe I've, I've been to bars and things like that and talked to people and call them repentance. But he called them to repentance. And unfortunately, these people who use this text against us don't. They're like, oh, Jesus loves you and have a wonderful plan for your life. You'll feel good in our church. What? No. Church of God, as we know, wants to repent. Members of the church want to hear of the law and the glories of the gospel so they can flee their sin because they hate it and embrace Christ. And this is part of that calling, to repent. Jesus calls Sinners to repentance, and those are the ones who need to hear the message. Christ's Christ's call as a minister 
as a pastor, which is essentially what he is here. The pastor of all pastors, the great shepherd, the bishop, he's called. The great presbyter, the elder of the church. That's his specific job. That's my job, to preach this to you and anyone else who'll hear it. Talk about it. It is your job only insofar as you're able to give an answer of the hope with, that is within you. You have a day job. You have families to take care of. This is not a text about you hanging out at the local bar all the time trying to save people. But rather, what's the mission of Christ and the gospel? The gospel to help save those who know their sins, who want to be saved, who acknowledge their need of a Savior. And Christ shall indeed save them to the uttermost. The opportunity arises, of course, give that answer of the gospel, praying that they would repent and cry out to Christ, the great physician of the soul. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty, for this glorious picture, wherein Christ at the same time rebukes the Pharisees, the scribes, but also gives light, the glorious light of his mission, instructing us that you have called sinners, people who feel the burden of their wickedness, to repentance, to a a life of salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us, God, to be encouraged by that and to speak the truth as well to others. In your name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing. Psalm 130b, 130b.
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.